this is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of the Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Seth Morton. Seth is a director of TFOA and has served families and family offices in the areas of investment diligence, execution, management, family governance, research, communications, resilience, and legacy planning. He works to improve performance by cultivating a learning-focused and communications-driven process for his clients. He's got a PhD in literature from Rice and a bachelor's in literature and German from Michigan State University. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today, Seth. Thank you for having me. All right. Today is going to be a first part of a multi-part series that we'll be focusing on lessons learned from classical literature and literature for family offices. I think this will be an enjoyable one to take lessons from different eras uh, of literature and apply them to family office dynamics, family dynamics, and and how all these things come together. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this, Seth. So let's let's get jump let's jump in. Before we do, though, give us a, a little bit of a background of how you got started working with family offices in the first place. Well, that's a great question, and it's one I'm, I'm asked a lot because uh, not often do you find PhDs uh, running around the family office space, PhDs in literature, most most importantly. Although there are a few of us here, and I, I'm always pleased when, when uh, I find another English major or another lover of literature, and I count you, Eddie, as, as part of this troop of uh, fans of literature and the arts in this world. Um, you know, for me... My research and dissertation was really focused on systems theory, um, information theory in the context of 20th century culture, economics. I was doing a lot of work looking into behavioral economics and and kind of this this period of interdisciplinary research that was happening around the time of of World War One and two and then in the mid-century as well. Um, and that that work, Kind of coincided with a lot of thinking about organizations, developments, governments, corporations, and kind of the rules that govern how those structures work, and especially on the communication side, how how communication happens within systems. Um, toward the end of my PhD, I was thinking about ways that I could apply all of this research, you know, that took me all over the world and afforded me opportunities to match wits with some of the best minds of my generation. Um, and I, I came across a, a you know, relatively newly formed family office that was trying to develop more resilient strategies for their legacy planning, for succession, um, and trying to find alignments between the, the work of their operations and investments you know, internally on the one hand, and then also the, the dreams, visions, hopes, aspirations, and fears of, of the family members on the other. And you know, in a kind of... Um, unsuspecting way, or at least unanticipated way, my work fit very nicely into that intersection. And uh, it's from there that I've been able to work with a number of different families in a number of different contexts. Um, but always, you know, often turning back to these lessons and um, ideas that come out of not only literature, but also just all of this sort of humanities-based research and organizations and, and thinking about, you know, communications and other things in this context to, to help families both articulate their ideas and to put those articulated ideas into meaningful plans and procedures. All right. So tell our listeners how literature written 100, 200, thousand years ago, 400, 400, <laughs> or or 400 years ago could, could be uh, relevant to, to today. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, you know, this is also, I think the, the, you're, you're asking me the, we might think of as the the modern version of you know whenever your if your child decides to get a degree in philosophy or literature or something else the the dreaded question well what are you going to do with that <laughs> or what is that for uh, I'll offer sort of three ways to think about it in the context of family offices and in the context of business and in economics more broadly you know for one literature is a it's a historical record it's a way. It's a, it's a living document of different points of history, how humans and how societies were thinking through different kinds of problems. You know, I, um, I think Aristotle was the first to make this observation that if you compare and contrast history and uh, literature, what he would call poetry or poetry, you know, history is the discourse of 
contingencies of, you know, instances in time that took place and what were the factors that led to those contingencies. Whereas poetry, literature, these are more concerned with trans-historical concepts. You know, it's why we're planning today to talk about King Lear later and, and Shakespeare and why we can read Shakespeare today or, or why someone like Anthony Hopkins can play Lear today um, and we can watch it and, and relate to those themes, even though it was written so many years ago. So it does two things. It has a kind of a, it's both a trans-historical record of, of humans wrestling with big questions and we get a sort of a firsthand look at how humans wrestle with those things. And it also gives us uh, sort of looks into different historical periods and we can understand and compare, contrast those, those contexts against our own. Um, it's also a very sophisticated medium of, you know, often you'll hear people talk about the importance to tell stories, especially in a hyper-mediated landscape. You know, there's so much focus on, on social media. Businesses are constantly asked to, to tell the world what they do or to, to tell stories to, you know, have a strong brand identity, maybe in the context of a, of a company. Um, but also, you know, in the context of a family office, a, a family has its own legacy or story that it tells of its, you know, how it came to be. And, and that story is important, you know, for itself in the present, but also for future generations. And literature is a is a, an archive of the best version or the, the richest archive we have available of those kinds of stories, of all kinds of stories. And so, you know, it's to me, it's a very natural fit. And this is perhaps a banal observation, but if storytelling is important in contemporary business for myriad reasons, then it's good or it would behoove us to look at actually, you know, real stories or stories that were told or what many consider to be some of the best stories ever told to understand how and why they came to be. And then the third reason, and, and this is a little bit more subtle, but, you know, it's very important, I think, today, especially this a term that's thrown around a lot is the value of critical thinking, right? What does it mean to be a critical thinker or to critically think? And, you know, a lot of articles one might read about you know, the the conclusion is, oh, we need to develop our critical thinking skills. Well, how does one actually do that? What does it mean to be a critical thinker? You know, to me, literature, the humanities in general, are really the repository of all critical thinking. And in the same way that a, a quantitative analyst might study, you know, advanced calc or theoretical mathematics, even though that work doesn't impact her day-to-day -day life as a, as a trader or as a quant, it sort of sharpens those best skills. You know, I think we, we turn to the humanities, to literature, history, philosophy, all these other disciplines, because they're sort of the most advanced, hardest uh, versions of that. And it sharpens our skills for, you know, all of the other kinds of work that we have to do in this space of, of communication, of behavior, of, you know, understanding uh, motivations and analysis and all of these other things, you know, the, that, that broad bucket that we, we describe of as the qualitative. You know, just to pick up on, on one aspect of it, I mean, it, it almost seems like there's an area, like a sub part of what Joseph Campbell looked at. And, sure. And maybe even something to be, you know, I, I haven't seen this done and, and, you know, I'm sure there is something out there, but really looking at a hero of a thousand faces version for, for family businesses and family offices, because there's a, just a, a derivation of that uh, kind of work for, for, for this area yeah. could be interesting. I, I think that's right. You know, I mean, that's a great example. You know, and if we think about Campbell's work on, on myth and archives, Campbell was, a um, had a pretty interesting background and, and did a lot of work on sort of comparative myths, looking at different myth systems from different cultures and finding all these parallels, across and and also then connecting those ancient myth systems to contemporary issues. I think today, you know, we could think about the the figure of the entrepreneur or in the context of family offices, the founder's generation. And there's a, a particular kind of sociology that's around, you know, what it means to be a founder. Um, and, you know, the, the text we're talking about today in, in King Lear is often very much concerned with that idea of the founder or a founding. Um, and then various problems and things that come out of of the succession from that um, generation. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Well, there you go. Anybody who wants to write a book, Joe Campbell and the the power of family myth or something like that. All right. So let's let's jump into to Lear, and I think it would be helpful uh, to give us a, a just a a brief synopsis of the plot, and and then because I think it, it may have been some time for. Many of us, uh, our English lit classes, 
uh, to, to go from there. But give us a little bit of a summary uh, to help us out. Sure. So King Lear, you know, when we started this comment, let me, if I can zoom out even a little bit further back or a little bit broader, you know, when we were talking about this idea, you know, why King Lear or, you know, what is King Lear? Why might King Lear be a good place to start a series on, on literature? Uh, you know, Lear is a, a play that has a lot of these themes around, um, succession i think you can read it as a play that's about what happens when succession is done very poorly tragically even um and it's about you know it gives you a very intimate and interesting portrait into the the lives behind the the outward faces of of uh you know, power or responsibility. You know, we think of the king or the leader. On the one hand, they have their public face, but then what is it actually that goes on behind those offices of power in terms of the the fear, the struggles, the the doubts, you know, all of these other concerns? Um, it is by William Shakespeare. It's a tragedy. Of course, it was written in the early 17th century. Um, and it's the story of a, a king. It's a, it's kind of a, it's not a history play like some of his other histories that are actual histories of here's a history, you know, a, a well-documented period of English history. Uh, Shakespeare was drawing from a kind of a, a, a more mythic period of England's history. There's some references to an, an older King Lear that was probably coming from a medieval period, a, a time when England had many dozens of kings. You know, I think there's some shows on Netflix that look at that period where you have the Vikings and you have the the early Christians and all of these people are kind of vying for different plots of power. It's before England is unified, pre, pre-William the, the Conqueror or as the French would have, and as he would have called himself, Guillaume uh, Le Conqueror, but uh, we call him William because uh, the English won in the end. Um, so the, um, yeah, so Lear is kind of drawing from that, that period. And that's a, what I mean by that sense of that Lear is in a way a kind of a founding story, a story of maybe where England came from, but in a kind of a mythic sense, not in a historical sense. Um, and it, and so the myth part is important because there's a, a fairy tale quality to the way that the story is told. It begins with Lear deciding that he wants to retire. Um, you know, this is the succession plan era or area if we, we think of it in the context of family offices. And he decides he he has three daughters and he wants to divide his kingdom in three parts. And so he asks each of his daughters to basically proclaim their love for him. And then based on that proclamation, he will you know, bequeath to them some portion of land. Uh, two of his daughters, Goneril and Regan, do so. Uh, and his third youngest daughter, who's also his favorite, named Cordelia, uh, says nothing. Uh, in fact, you know, more interestingly, she says uh, that words can't do her feelings justice, you know, to, to paraphrase. And so she can't really say anything. And this enrages Lear. It makes him furious. And he um, he denounces her, uh, basically cuts her out of the will, as it were, um, and, you know, is, is kind of set on a, in, on a path of rage. Um, there's some intricacies that we should get into around this. He, he decides that he's going to basically bounce back and forth between his two daughters and they're now, you know, they've now divided this kingdom in two and he's going to have a, a retinue of a hundred knights with him. And this is a, creates an economic burden for them. And, and so the play kind of follows Lear's descent, you know, the classic tragic structure going all the way back to the ancient Greeks as a high man is brought low. And Lear is very much that story and that he is sort of brought low. And then the, if we can pause there real quickly, quick, those because two, he's yes, brought please. low. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the, the situation with the three daughters, the issue of Cordelia, not properly, I don't know, for lack of better terms, flattering him. Uh, as mm-hmm. part of it, can you put that into a little bit of the context of of what's important to take out of the story uh, for for a lesson learned from a family? Sure. Yes, of course. I think it's you know again I I would approach this this moment this and these are just in the opening few pages of the play. The whole thing is set very quickly, set up very quickly. Um, I think what's important in the context of, of lessons and, and things to consider for, for families and in the context of family offices is that this very much is a succession plan. And it's one that that Lear puts on all of his advisors and his family without any kind of input, without any kind of planning. Most of the play is is kind of presented in almost a reactionary way. Everybody is kind of reacting to these. There's not a lot of forward thinking. Um 
the there's a, a couple one important irony is that Cordelia is actually in in many regards it's Lear's closest daughter Lear's closest kind of kin in many ways she's the most like her father um and in that sense that Lear is a king and as a is a leader Cordelia herself is also a, a leader of sorts and this comes into play into into um into importance in the in the fifth act you know here, I think it's one that the the terms for this division, you know, Cordelia rejects almost on principled grounds. She doesn't feel that words, you know, words, anybody can say anything. And that's not a real test for, you know, what an inheritance ought to be. And so she refuses to, to play it. There's also an important misunderstanding. Lear can't at the moment, you know, and this is, has to do one of the big themes of the play is is madness. Lear goes mad. You know, people kind of going temporarily insane is uh, is kind of a, a feature of the of the play. But but madness should be also understood in two ways. And you know, the madness is in a kind of a person goes crazy, but also madness in the more common way of just anger. You know, and the way in which anger, and more specifically, I would say Lear's emotions interrupt his rational faculties. His anger prevents him from seeing what's clearly in front of him, which is actually that the daughter that he is most like uh, is the one he is the most mad at because he can't understand her intentions. But in many ways, her intentions are the most true to what he wants, right? He wants to be appreciated. He wants to be, he wants to have a place in the world. He wants to be understood in a certain sense. And so- so like before that. we get further into Cordelia, why don't we finish the yeah. plot, right? So they've come sure. to the point where Cordelia is now banished or left or goes to France. Yeah, she goes to France. She, um, you know, and I think a reference text, if, if for listeners listening that are maybe interested that, you know, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. There's a really great version of the play that you can watch on uh, streaming on Amazon. Sir Anthony Hopkins plays King Lear and uh, a very... Uh, it's it's very good, and it's kind of the reference text here that that we're using. There's a lot of diversions. Of course, there's there's lots of edits and things like that just to make it you know run, fit a, a a movie screen time. But um, at the time in the in the play, she was being courted by two different um, two different princes, and um, the the prince of France you know makes a an interesting observation. I think this is uh, and I'll give you the line right here. Um, the the, the king of France says to her that uh, thou, you know, art most rich being poor. That is that even though she's lost everything, she has shown her kind of true value, which is her her sense of of rightness, her duty, her responsibility, her her sort of moral fortitude comes through. And, and she reveals herself that she is not driven by pure material gain, but she has a higher purpose, a higher a, a higher sense. France recognizes that this is true value. You know, we might think in in kind of modern organizational terms. These are, you know, people that that you know, in in the context of a family office, have a a, a real understanding of the the mission of the family, the 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 purpose. You know, the drive. We, we can think of family members themselves that perhaps they might not be motivated by by certain you know material outcomes, but they have a a sense of a higher calling, right? And that. There's a real, you know, this is what leaders, you know, this is what drives leaders more than anything else. And, and France recognizes this. And so, yes, he marries her and and they go off and they're sort of out of the play until the very end when when France ultimately invades England and because of the, the civil war that erupts between these So nations. give us the in-between. Yeah. So she, she, Cordelia is now in, uh, in France. What happens between now and the end? Yeah, the, 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 the quick and dirty summary from there is that these two daughters are you know, slowly kind of their relationship decays and and there becomes more infighting between them. Lear and that retinue of a hundred knights, that's a big economic burden that nobody wants to deal with. And Lear is this kind of interesting figure at this point. He's kind of like semi-retired, or it's it's that case of the founder who's who's trying to move on, trying to retire, but isn't quite completely out of it. And nobody really knows what to do with, still has a lot of authority, but not the same authority as before. And there's new authority and there's just a lot of confusion going on. Or um, unwilling to give the, up the reins yet because yes. the kids are not quite ready. Yes. Or, and yes, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, and this is the, the interpretation, how, you know, what are these different factors? Yes. Is it that they're not ready or not worthy or never would be? 
Um, there's another plot that we should also note that, you know, in a kind of like in a modern television show, there's an A plot and a B plot in King Lear. The A plot is King Lear. And the B plot is this guy, the, the Duke of Gloucester. And he has two sons, Edgar and Edmund. Edmund is his, um, is his um, illegitimate child. And Edgar is his legitimate child. Edmund uh, is kind of one of the the villain of the play, if there if there is one. He's um, basically connives behind the background and and he causes a lot of the the bad actions. But you know, in the beginning, he makes these he has these very interesting moments where he talks about you know uh, you know am I just a victim of my circumstance? You know, what does it mean to actually be evil, or am I just trying to do the best I can with the circumstance? And and Gloucester, you know is a good guy most of the time, but he does seem not to really do well by his son. And so the fact that his son then goes and, and goes down this sort of darker path is it's not that unsurprising in that context. And so there's certainly a lesson there in terms of, you know, what it means to be legitimate versus illegitimate. You know, these are big themes of the play. I think a big theme, a big overarching theme of the play is nature versus nurture. Um, so is it, it, you know, is it, is it, Edmund's nature or is it the conditions that he was raised in being always seen as inferior to his brother that led him to this path right and so I think certainly a lesson there in that one could learn just in compassion and kindness to, toward those and and toward maybe a more nuanced appreciation of, of what makes someone valuable or worthy and in, in um in the eyes of a family or you know a loved one something like that um, and so the play kind of, as we move through the acts, we see these two families, you know, they, they overlap in certain points, but they're sort of falling apart. And at the very end of the play, as I said, there's a civil war erupts, uh, France invades England, but is ultimately defeated. Uh, the two sisters end up killing each other through sort of what we would call Shakespearean ways. You know, one is poisoned, one is stabbed. It kind of happens off scene rather quickly. And the final, you know, in the in the final moments uh, of the play, the the um, th those that are left alive, Lear is dead, Cordelia is dead, the daughters are dead, um, Gloucester is blind and kind of cast out. Um, there's the sense that things are worse than they were before this whole thing started and that the future is not that bright. And Edgar kind of toward the end of the play has this uh, very, I think, um, telling lines. He says, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest have borne most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. And so there's that sense that the future is actually you know, while we always want a better future for our children in the world of Lear, the children actually have a, a dimmer and darker future. Um, and there's also this sense, and, and I think this is also important in the context of family office, that it's that that difference between, you know, how the founder's generation and the, the sort of the halcyon days and how that's viewed through history when people are looking back on it. And the weight of that burden and the weight of what it means to carry that through future generations when when not properly um, managed through sort of, you know, marshalling resources and succession and, and you know, developing leaders that can rise to the occasion of, of those previous generations. So let's go back and touch on some of the themes, go a little bit deeper, because that, that sure. was a great overview. And I think Cordelia could be a, a good place to start, especially her relationship with her father. Give us an overview of it. Are there things that happen uh, during the play that could shed some light on what where areas where Lear could have done better? Cordelia could have done better or or there could have been a different outcome as part of it and uh you know maybe a lesson learned at, at the end or a cautionary tale at the end well i i love first of all i want to stop on your question i want to kind of make a comment on your question it's it's so great but it's also an important lesson in itself um you know you ask what are some moments where things could have gone better or could have gone differently and i think a play like lear and any tragedy always invites that question. Well, what could have, if only X would have happened, right? If only, you know, this could have happened. And from a critical, you know, when I, I laid out some some of the less, you know, the value of literature overall, a third of that, the thing that I laid out was critical thinking. And um, 
there's this concept called a negative argument. And I think this is important for anybody listening that is engaged in, in talking and discussing and, and exchanging ideas and you know all these things. What is a negative argument? A negative argument isn't an argument that's negative or sad or mean or you know whatever. A negative argument is merely an argument towards something that doesn't exist. So for us to say, well, what would the play be if it were a different play is in its nature a negative argument because you know there is there is the play there is the text there is the there is what it is you know there is the organ you know these are you know these are the conditions the given state of things and we can theorize and hypothesize different alternatives but you know we have to always be careful when we make those kinds of arguments and positions to understand that um that doesn't change the way things, what things actually are. And so I want to just highlight that because, and I, and I think for anybody reading literature, there's always a, a tendency and a desire to, um, to uh, entertain those kinds of arguments. And it's important to do so, but it's also important to balance that against what the text actually says or what the situation actually is. So we're, you'll give us some some hope on, on how to falsify these the hypothesis throughout throughout this. Exactly. Okay. Yes. The opening pages of the play present many moments when Lear could have changed his mind. His his greatest advisor is this man named Kent, who very early on is like basically advising you know Lear you know this isn't a great idea. You know, this, this is, seems really rash. It seems, you know, this seems mad, mad in the sense that you are mad and, the, you know, maybe a little crazy, but also seem to be very angry. The speed at which he becomes angry with Cordelia is also surprising to, to many people in that room. Um, you know, this, the, the relationship between Lear and Cordelia is often um, introduced through other characters. Now, later in the play, Lear has moments where he reflects that that she was his favorite, but there isn't a lot of of exchange between the two of them. Um, it happens in the in the fourth act um, briefly, but a lot of the sense that that we have from of the relationship itself is kind of observed through other characters. It's observed through people like the King of France, who who describes Cordelia as Lear's balm, like she is the thing that soothes him that she has some special understanding of him. Um, and, you know, one of the the issues here, and I, I think here this this lesson, and I think we, you know, certainly in my experience, I've, I've seen this play out in, in the context of families, which is that often, you know, sometimes when family members can come at loggerheads with each other, it's not actually because they're dissimilar, it's because they're very similar with each other. You know, the, 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 um, the determined founder can sometimes often come at odds with a equally determined, um, you know, second generation, third generation, you know, other person like this. And so I think one of the the interesting observations here with with Cordelia is it's her similarity to Lear that that makes it so difficult sometimes. You know, where could things have changed? You know, I think it it's always that that opening scene, you know, which sets up the entire the play exists because because Lear makes this rash decision to divide his his kingdom into three parts based on what his children decide to say about him in that moment you know the the prime moment of well wait we could probably design this better is to say this is not a great this is not a great way to think of how uh, succession should happen in the context of a family office right and you know i think a modern corollary is the the extent to which one tries to teach lessons through wills or through estate planning, through, you know, relation, you know, through trusts, um, with those, those documents and those governance procedures can't replace actual relationships. Uh, and it's actual relationships that are really the, that create the, the ties that bind the family across those generations. Um, Cordelia understands this. It's, it's her sisters that, are swept up in the moment and are just trying to figure out how to game the system in order to kind of move ahead. And it's that those machinations that ultimately lead to the the demise of the kingdom. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Yes. One of some of one of Lear's more famous lines. And and you know, another theme that I think is worth mentioning that that line exemplifies the the serpent's tongue. There are many 
images of animals that run throughout the play. Uh, Lear later describes his daughters as foxes. The, the image of the fox appears multiple times. Uh, Lear to Kent says, you know, come not between the dragon and his rage when he is very mad at, at Cordelia. And there is a, a continued discussion throughout the play of what does it mean to be a person, a human? Uh, is there something more to being a human than just being an animal? Or are we just merely animals? And this is interesting in the context of a king or a leader because there is the public image, the office of power on the one hand, and the very real experience of what it means to grow old. You know, one of the reasons that Lear as a play has endured and how many today see it as one of Shakespeare's best is that it gives this very intimate portrait of a man growing old who is not as sharp as he once was. While all people look to him with that same, you know, wanting to see the king that he once was, wanting to see the leader, in his private moments, Lear admits to himself that he is somehow out of step or he does not recognize who he is today, you know, the 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 man that is growing old that he sees in the mirror, you know, or whatever. His his fool, you know, there's this character, the fool, who comes in and out of the play and, and provides this outside perspective. And of course, in, in Shakespeare and in many plays from this period, these outsider characters like fools are often the ones that speak truth, right? Um, I think this is the lesson here, if we're thinking of lessons to draw from literature, is that um, the, the valued perspective of outsiders, because they can see the system from a different vantage point, and they aren't constrained by the same forces of law and rule. And so they're able to make, you know, the fool can say things to Lear that no one else could. If anybody else said it, they would be executed, but the fool can say it. Uh, and so that gives him a special power and privilege, and it gives us special insight. And to Lear, he says, um, you know, the, the real tragedy is that you you grew old before you grew wise. And that idea that wisdom and age are not necessarily co-determinant of each other, that one can actually just become an old person and still be unwise. And in many ways, that's that's how Lear is through the first four acts of the play. Not until the very end does he seem to wake up from his period of madness and realize the error of his ways. He has moments where he seems to kind of understand what's happening. Um, and so, you know, some have looked at this play as, as perhaps an early meditation on sen senility, on, on growing old and, and on the difficulty of, you know, what do you do when you have an aging family member, you know, a person that we all want to look to with respect and, and deference and we all want to see as a source of authority, but also we understand that maybe they're not quite as there as they once were, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate that? And, you know, this is explored in this play through, you know, one of the ways through this animal imagery or through this, you know, the idea of, you know, the the presentation of power and royalty, the offices of power or leadership on the one hand, uh, you know, the divine right of kings as, as what would have been believed in that medieval mythic period versus the understanding that these are all people. They have base instincts. They have their good days, their bad days. They make mistakes and eventually all of us die and we have to grapple with that mortality. Um, and, you know, no matter how high you ascend in life, we all sort of come to that end. And that is a, a, a difficult thing for Lear to grapple with. And that's one of the things that seems to be at, at work in the play as well. Let's talk about, you know, transitions and people who can mm -hmm. speak truth to power, try to speak truth to power or avoid speaking truth to power. I don't know if we want to call Kent a family office executive or head of, head of the family office, but he certainly somebody that's close and uh, yes. kind of emulates what a lot of uh, people could see themselves in Kent or hopefully not see themselves in Kent uh, <laughs> as an executive. Maybe you can give us a little background on that dynamic and how that, that fits into the secession thing that you talked about earlier, because that's another uh, point that I think is, is critical to take away. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, it's hard not to sympathize with Kent and to admire Kent on some way. You know, when the whole world is going mad, Kent seems to be the one person uh, who you can turn to throughout the play that at least has kind of holding on to some semblance of reality as everybody is is kind of losing it. Um, Kent is, is, is Lear's closest advisor, his best friend. You know, we might think of this as a, a trusted relationship, um, a deeply trusted uh, advisor. And he 
issues to Lear a word of advice about Cordelia. He says very frankly, you know, I, I think you're making a mistake. This, I think this is not a, a good course of action. And Lear, caught up in the moment, banishes Kent. Um, you know, Kent, though, doesn't sort of take that laying down. He decides to disguise himself. He He feels that somehow Lear is not, you know, for whatever reason, Lear is not himself. But he swore an oath. Uh, a do- he has a duty to the king. He has a duty to 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 this family in some way, and that you know we might think in a systems theory kind of concept, he he owes his fealty to the system, you know, above above all else, or to the family. And so even though Lear in this instance is is you know banishing him, he feels that it's his personal duty to to stay by Lear's side in, in one way or another. And so he he disguises himself, and even though Lear doesn't recognize him, he stays by his side and he helps him, and he's with him through kind of thick and thin. And provides, you know, not necessarily guidance, but I think more important than, you know, it's I think what's more important in Kent is not necessarily the advice that he gives, but more the loyalty and dedication to the person. You know, sometimes it's not so much uh, what we say or what we do, but that we are there, right, to be with somebody when they're going through this. You know, when his daughters very quickly abandon him, Gonrel and Reagan, that is, when they you know, kind of turn on him for their own pursuits and, and all these other people. Lear finds himself kind of in the middle of a storm, a very famous moment in the third act. This is always portrayed, you know, with great grandeur, whatever, you know, Hopkins does a great job of this, but but every actor, this is kind of the the dream. The reason that actors want to play Lear is for this amazing soliloquy that that happens in the storm. And the people that he has around him, it's Kent disguised. You know, he doesn't recognize him. It's it's his fool. Uh, and then later, it's it's Edgar, the the um, the legitimate heir of of Gloucester, who is also in disguise, and and the four of them are this kind of hodgepodge family in the middle of the woods, trying to figure things out. You know, as this play is, is finds itself in this strange place. But but back to Kent, you know, I think you know uh, at the beginning, Kent issues probably the wisest piece of advice that anybody issues in, in the play, and in telling Lear straightly that he's making a mistake. He sticks through Lear and is with him through thick or thin, you know, at a period where Lear can't be reasoned with, you know, he recognizes that and doesn't try to reason with him, just tries to go along with him just to try to be there, you know, maybe to protect himself or to, to keep him safe. And then at the end, when he kind of returns to his office, uh, Kent is there to kind of, you know, offer some, some final advice and, and perspective to those that remain. But, you know, they, he is, in fact, offered the position, well, you should probably be one of the people to lead this. But, you know, at that point, either because he's seen too much or because he he realizes that this job really isn't all that it's cracked up to be, he decides that, you know, he, he sort of just, you know, Shakespeare sort of writes him out of the play, for lack of a better word. But he he remains, you know, he's sort of seen taking Lear, Lear's body off and, you know, presumably to, to bury him and honor him. And, and then, you know, that's sort of the end of it. And so, you know, I think, you know, with Kent, you have the kind of ideal family advisor, someone that is able to speak truth, is there through thick and thin, understands that, you know, sometimes it's not so much about having the best idea or being right, but it's just about being there and being supportive in times where support is needed. Um, and, you know, he never really judges Lear ill. You know, I think he understands more than anybody that Lear is in an impossible position. And this is often the case, I think, we find with, with you know, I think we can look at a number of famous historical leaders, too, that, you know, there there are no right answers. You're just trying to mitigate, mitigate you know, various forms of risk um, and trying to find the best possible outcome, even though perhaps a good outcome is not on the table. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not the, necessarily the fault of anyone, but it's the, the responsibility of those that work there to kind of do the best with what they can. And, and Kent really exemplifies this. We talked about, uh, you know, the, the dynamics around secession. We talked around, you know, this, this issue around flattery and, and what the expectation of a patriarch or matriarch can be. What about generational? And I think that that's an interesting thing to think about as you're looking at the theme of families as they go from G1 to 2 to 3 to 4, the mythology that's created within the family, how that uh, plays into what's here. And I, I think there's some good themes that we could we could pull from, from Lear on, on that aspect. Yeah, there's, you know, there's so much. I mean, I, I do think this is why this this is 
you know, one of one of Shakespeare's great great plays and and great sort of studies of a family or kind of looking at a family. No, I, one one thing that I want to offer as a way to think about this is looking forward versus looking back. That so many, you know, in that opening scene when when the daughters are asked to to declare their love, you know, they're not asked to declare a vision of what they want the kingdom to be or to offer insight or advice or perspective on on how to grow or how to develop you know they're they're actually offered you know and this is one of the you know Lear's uh, flaws a, sort of a tragic flaw that he carries as a kind of a, a self-centeredness or you know a kind of a narcissistic dimension to him which you know you have to sort of forgive on some level as the king having being in that position where everybody's always looking at you it's hard not to escape that that kind of dynamic but you know what's interesting when you compare those those three daughters is that the the two daughters that remain remain very much locked into the struggle of the past over this kingdom it's it's cordelia that actually moves out that leaves goes off and has her own experiences and is actually kind of you know what we might call like building productive relationships in different ways in a kind of organizational sense she's she's building diplomatic relations with other nations she's creating value in in different ways so she's actually you know even though she's technically banished she's the most productive from that kind of you know if we're thinking strictly in terms of of you know building out the the resources of the kingdom whereas the 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 other two, you know, are Gonrel and Reagan are very much just sort of squabbling and fighting over this land and also trying to minimize their risk from all of these knights and the economic burden that they represent. And so as it comes to think about generations and, and succession and responsibilities, you know, I think one of the things about Lear is, remember, it, it itself is a play that's looking into England's past or this mythic past, and it's trying to kind of extract something out of it. And the the world that it presents is one that itself is kind of stuck in its own time, that it's not really looking forward. You know, Shakespeare's England was one that was building relationships with the new world. You had this emergent merchant class, you know, this nascent form of, of capitalism emerging and all of these new international networks and businesses and all of these different things developing. Um, so much of that is absent from the world of the play. And, you know, I'm saying this at the risk of making a negative argument as I, you know, uh, defined earlier but i think this is an important little insight of when you see what the play doesn't show in this moment is it's not showing that kind of productive activity right and and that's you know one of the things that is kind of one of lear's big blind spots is that he's on this journey to try to understand himself you know he himself isn't talking about what he wants the kingdom to be or his wishes, his ideas for the future, anything like that. You know, the future is oddly absent from the entirety of the play until the very end. And, and those words that that Edgar uh, says at the play's close, which is that, you know, this this world that we find ourselves in is probably going to be darker than it was. You know, the one time that the play kind of turns its eyes forward, things are, are kind of looking grim. And, and you get the sense that, well, maybe if you had been kind of thinking about that earlier, instead of all of this other stuff, you could have averted some of those outcomes. So maybe around, uh, he has this uh, great line is, who is it that can tell me who I am? Defining yes. me. And I, you could take that in many different ways of, as a question uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or, or a statement of um, objection to people trying to box him into something and, and really pulls on those, those threads. Let's sit on that. I mean, you know, you're, you're pulling out amazing lines, first of all. So please keep them coming because any one of these we could, we could uh, meditate on for, for many hours. But, you know, who is it that can tell me who I am? Part of the problem of that statement is that Lear is kind of at the apex. You know, there's a it's almost an existential problem. That is that, you know, who is it that can that has the authority or that can can offer some kind of outside perspective or, or some kind of meaningful insight or who can I relate to? Because his position is so unique and so rare and so strange in many ways. Or think, is it? You know, as we're thinking about lessons. Right. Or is it? Right. He I is mean, the, certainly that's his right. Perception. He is the king, but there are other kings. There are other kings, yes. Although not 
all all sort of absent around him. And but you know, I think it's you know this is why the fool is you know the fool is one character, right? So you have the outsider that can kind of name him in some way or, or who can tell him who he is. You have Kent who can kind of advise him and and tell him, well, I think that what you're doing is not going to lead to the outcomes that you want. Um, but in the world of the play, you know, he he really has no equal. He is really sort of outside, you know, himself in in many sorts of ways. Um, you know, you know, I, I think there, you know, another theme, another. But I would be careful on on that one. Not you, careful, but careful into thinking that you're the only one in that position. And sometimes yes. that can lead to thinking that there's no way out, and I, you know, there's no absolute way, and I'm completely unique and there's no way that there could be another uh, person or situation, family, business or occasion that's had this. And I think that can sometimes lead to people going to the a line that I absolutely hate. It's, you know, if you've seen one family off, if you've seen one family off, I can't stand <laughs> it because it, uh, I think it's an oversimplification and, and gets away from the fact that there are some things that could be it le- there are many things that are families do well uh, and can be it can be emulated and, and can be adapted to a particular f- situation for a family. And that, yeah, and that perhaps is part of the, the way to thinking it here is that he thinks he's a unique snowflake, but, but he may not be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the other theme here or, well, uh, you know, I was going to say loneliness or isolation. And I think you're right that it's a misperception on Lear's part, he feels alone. And this is where the role of king is getting in the way of his role as father or his his relation as human. That at the end of the day, he is just a human and he can, you know, he and Kent share more alike in the fact that they're both, you know, men of a certain age that have seen, have probably been to war together, have seen some things and can probably relate to each other. But his he's letting the office get in the way of, of some very obvious things that are in front of him. You know, and the theme, the way that this plays out in the play is too, is through this idea of blindness or, or what is seen and what is unseen. Gloucester and that, that other family, the, the B story of this is, you know, and kind of one of more Shakespeare's more violent onstage moments is actually blinded on stage. Uh, a character gouges his eyes out. Um, which is usually done to, to great dramatic effect if you ever see the play live. Um, and so that this big theme of of not being able to see what's in front of you. And I think in, in this moment, as you rightly point out, I mean, you're, that, you know, the those perceptions of those ideas of isolation, of loneliness, those things, those are often barriers. Uh, and there's usually much more simple remedies to them. Just, you know, this is why having people around you that you can trust is, is so important. People that can kind of bring you back to earth, that can ground you in certain ways, that can, you know, no matter how how big or successful the company is, people that can kind of bring you back down. This is why families are so important in the context of family offices, I think, and why, you know, the families of affinity, to use kind of James E. Hughes's concept of, you know, the the greater extended network of, of advisors and, and people that are aligned with, with the family you know, the important role that they play is to help prevent that kind of, you know, uh, myopia. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I also, you know, this is one of the great ways, you know, Lear at the end of the day is a tragedy. And, you know, for all the lessons we can learn, we also have to keep in mind that the decisions that he makes and the world that he lives in is one that is defined by tragedy. That is to say, it's defined by making the wrong choices consistently and then seeing how those choices lead to their inevitable end. Let's wrap with this question. Why do you think Shakespeare okay. wrote this play? Why did he mm-hmm. write it? Is mm-hmm. that the question? Um, you know, Shakespeare was writing in a, in a period of great diversity, a great economic diversity, a period of, of English history that was seeing things that had never been seen before in the world. You know, this, you know, uh, Older, you know, uh, people before me would have called this period the Renaissance. That term is still used, the rebirth, the the rediscovery, you know, specifically how Western Europe kind of rediscovered the Greek and Roman past. Um, And it kind of led to the age of reason and all these scientific discoveries, all this stuff. Today, the more common way that we refer to that period is the early modern period, because when we think about the conditions of modernity, the, you know, um, global networks, economies, business, you know, all of these contemporary structures that, that kind of shape our life. 
when we're looking to where that began, it's in this period, right? And so that's why we can read Shakespeare today and, and relate to it. Whereas if we read plays from generations before, you know, just a you know, 20 years, 30 years before Shakespeare was writing, the plays are very unfamiliar. You know, they're much more um, coming out of that medieval period. And so there's a big shift that's happening in the world at the time that Shakespeare is writing. And and we we call it early modern because it's connected to how we see ourselves as, as modern subjects. And so, you know, Shakespeare wrote the play, I would say, because he's grappling with all of these ideas or he's trying to understand all of the questions that we've been talking about, you know, what, you know, um, what are, what shapes human outcomes, nature or nurture? What is the role of, of organizations and power? You know, where does, where does authority come from? Does it come from, as you know, Thomas Jefferson would write centuries later, a consent of the people in the context of the declaration of independence, or does it come from somewhere else? Uh, are, are kings able to make mistakes or are they somehow unable to make mistakes? Are they, are they human or are they not? You know, these kinds of themes, you know, obviously in his period, they, they have an understanding, you know, we're all people, you know, in his own life, he saw the, the period of, of Queen Elizabeth and, you know, very popular queen and she died and he was, you know, his company was then financed by the, the next King, King James. And so, you know, the succession of kings and the, the transfer of power, the emergence of these new businesses and the merchant class that was happening around him was uh, raising new ideas, questions, all of these different things and and plays like Lear and, and you know, other work of Shakespeare and other writers in this time and, and moving forward are are grappling with these things, uh, trying to understand them. And, you know, it's a, it's an incredible resource for us in the 21st century that we have the privilege to be able to look at these and have a conversation like this and kind of think about it and, and think about what lessons we can draw from it today to, to help, you know, you know, hopefully not end up temporarily mad in the woods, getting our eyes gouged out in a rainstorm. <laughs> yeah. Or getting your eyes gouged out. <laughs> well, nothing will come of nothing. Uh, but that was certainly the opposite for, for this uh, conversation, Seth. So I really appreciate it. Yes. Something did come of something today. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is part one. We'll, we'll, this is of a, of a multi-part series, so we'll we'll come back next time. Seth, they'll have you on for for the next one, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. So thanks for joining, Seth, and and for all of you for listening in today. And if you'd like to get in touch with Seth or you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. And if they want to get in touch with you, Seth, what's the best way to do that? I would say uh, check out our website tfoatx.com or. Uh, check out TFOA on LinkedIn. You can find myself, uh, Mark Sharp, the founder. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, are so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you listen to and prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone.